Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Valves. Good evening and welcome. Tonight we're going to be talking about provision for able children with Rob Lightfoot of the National Association for Able Children in Education and Professor Andy P. Hill of York St. John University. So join us as we explore what we might understand by the term able, the able child and perfectionism and NACE's school-based work. Live from York. This is The Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Well, hello everyone and welcome to my first show of 2023. I hope that what is surely the longest 31-day month of the year is treating you well. Since we were last together in October, I visited a Benedictine monastic school in Bavaria with a group of senior school students, managed to catch flu for the first time in about 20 years, helped our Year 13 students prepare themselves for their first set of mock exams, and read the new biography of American macabre humorist and illustrator Edward Gorey. You catch me this evening in the middle of an Erasmus reconnaissance visit, during which my colleague Charlotte and I have been hosting four teachers who have come from Czechia, Germany and Ireland, while we plan a week of joint educational and social activities for students from our four monastic schools in North Yorkshire in March. We have spent the last year exploring issues related to climate change, the environment and stewardship, considering water management in the Czech Republic, forestry in Germany, and the lives of remote communities living off the west coast of Ireland. The result of our investigations over the last few days suggests the environmental focus of our Yorkshire-based study will probably revolve around sustainable fisheries and the transition towards renewable wind power in the decades ahead. Whitby is famous for many reasons. It is home to the Abbey, where the current date of Easter was fixed at the Synod of Whitby in 1664. It is the site of Count Dracula's supernatural arrival in England. It remains the epicentre of the trade in jet jewellery popularised by Queen Victoria following the death of her husband Albert. But, incredibly, it is also a training centre for the engineers who will soon be working at the world's largest offshore wind farm at Dogger Bank, just 50 miles northeast of Whitby Harbour. The juxtaposition of Whitby's quaint cobbled streets, calf-testing hills and steps, and fish and chip eateries with the hovercrafts, helicopters and cutting-edge technology of the turbines themselves is a mind-bending one that seems likely to be repeated elsewhere as the UK seeks to meet its challenging goals on energy security and decarbonisation in the coming decades. In the last fortnight, the Crown Estate has signed deals that will enable offshore turbines at Dogger Bank to generate power sufficient for 7 million homes 
at full capacity. The pressures of climate change continue to bring very real transformations to our own doorsteps, and the northeast coast is certainly going to look rather different as the next generation of holidaymakers tuck into their fish and chips on the shores of Whitby, Sands End, and Saltburn. Tonight's show represents a significant departure from our recent explorations of the post-apocalyptic curriculum and prison education as we turn our attention to provision for able children, both academically and pastorally, as they seek to make their way through a curriculum underpinned by a statutory assessment regime that does not always provide the able with the type and intensity of challenge that we might wish for them. Joining me to discuss the issues posed by the questions, what do we mean by the able child? How do the able cope with academic work? And how can schools best cater for their able students are Rob Lightfoot and Professor Andy P. Hill. Taking on the role of NACE CEO from October 2021, Rob Lightfoot has nearly 30 years experience of working in educational settings, drawing on his experiences from a wide range of senior management roles. Rob led the work on Haybridge High School and Sixth Form, being one of the first schools in the country to attain the NACE Challenge Award on three occasions. Rob has also several years experience working as a primary school governor. Rob has delivered training to hundreds of teachers and leaders. He has worked extensively as a NACE associate, leading a NACE research and development hub and delivering courses on curriculum design, mathematics, and how to lead on more able provision within an educational setting. He also worked previously as a lead practitioner on curriculum design for the Specialist Schools and Academies Trust. More recently, Rob has been involved with various research initiatives he has studied both the resilience of students in mathematics and the increase of perfectionist tendencies and characteristics in young adolescents. Good evening, Rob, and thank you for being with us on Teachers Talk Radio tonight. Good evening, Christopher. It's a pleasure to be with you. Great to have you with us. I'm also pleased to introduce our second guest for tonight's show. Professor Andy Hill. And Professor Andy Hill has spent a considerable amount of time working on the issues of perfectionism and able students. Professor Hill directs a research group examining the consequences of perfectionism in different achievement contexts at York St John University. He leads on the university's collaboration with NACE, which focuses on developing research and resources to help those working in schools to understand perfectionism and its impact, to support students with perfectionistic traits, and to reduce the extent to which learning environments are experienced as perfectionistic by students. Professor Hill has co-authored a number of different studies, 70 peer-reviewed papers, 10 book chapters, and edited one book in the field of perfectionism. He believes that reducing perfectionism is one of the most important things to do when seeking to improve student mental health and achievement. 
Good evening, Andy. I'm pleased you can join us tonight. Good evening. Thanks very much for having me. Good to have you with us. Shall we open up then, Rob, with the work of NACE and what we mean by the able child? Is there an accepted definition of the able that your organisation recognises? I think the difficulty in this field is obviously there's no universal definition. Um, so one of the things that we do and have been doing for 40 years now um, is to, I believe that schools need to be clear and consistent on their approach and provision for their more able learners so that we have that clear shared understanding of what and who is meant amongst all staff and stakeholders. So in terms of the more able definition, I think what it amounts to is that where learners who have the capacity or potential, which I think is really important, which I'll come back to in a moment. So learners who have the capacity or the potential for high attainment, learners who demonstrate high levels of performance, and not just across all areas of the curriculum, but possibly in one specific academic academic area or one or two, um, and learners who are more able relative to their peers in their own year group class and school college um, we'll get on to some of the problems perhaps with the terminology um, later this evening um, but I think something really important is that I still find there are possibly schools that think they don't have more able learners and I think the the definition of more able to gifted uh, which was used more in the 2000s and is still used nationally internationally but in the UK we tend to use more able definition now is that importance that learners who are more able relative to their peers in their own year group class or school and college so for the more able pupils that includes those with the potential to achieve and I think the really the really interesting and difficult challenge for teachers is how we unpick those students that have the latent ability rather than actually performing achievements. So many more able students or pupils are underachievers. And it's how we set up our teaching, our curriculum to enable to, if you like, unearth those students that perhaps are underachieving to their ability at the current time. So is there also then perhaps an issue with schools working from a definition that is unique to their own context or perhaps based on dated information? I think the difficulty there is that obviously within we have the difficulty where perhaps students move from one school to another. I think it's really important, first of all, for schools to ensure that consistency of approach within their own institution and working with the schools that they work with. Um, because for me, the, the terminology I think that used to be used, which I guess is OK as a starting point, you know, more able. It was t referred to as the top 10 percent of students. Um, and we'll get on to, you know, most exceptionally able students, I'm sure, this evening. But for me, it's that that key point of identifying and having a clear methodology methodology within the school of who these students are and how we work with them. That's really, really important. Fantastic. So if the schools themselves can identify a process that is consistent, then that might move them in the right direction to working with the students. Definitely. Um, one thing we recommend, certainly our Challenge Award schools, we we have a number of things that we do in NACE. I mean, we've worked with schools, education leaders now for 40 years. This is our 40th anniversary this year. Um, but I think we would recommend, although it isn't statutory, to have a more able policy because I think that helps, first of all, the discussion as to what needs to take place within school so that we agree the terminology and definitions used when speaking of learners already achieving and those definitions and terminology 
they mustn't overshadow the priority given to the teaching and learning within and indeed outside the classrooms. I think it's really important, something that I know I changed in my teeth recently, it's that I think when I started 30 years ago, things weren't as good as they are now. And there could have been a tendency to aim at the middle um, mm. of the group, whereas I think now things have moved on you know, for good. Um, but the enrichment idea still has its place, but it's really about how we get challenge in the classroom, enable students to think deeply about their learning. And in addition to that, I think it's important that we obviously having given them that, it should actually explain to the students why we are looking to do things in the way that we are as well. So including student voice within this so that students understand why we are teaching in a particular way. But for me, it's getting that every second of every lesson, um, creating that challenge, particularly for our disadvantaged, more able learners. You know, making use of that every second in the classroom is really important so that we can challenge our students to be the very best that they can be. Yeah, so there's certainly a significant pressure on the classroom space as being that opportunity for students in that category. Um, what kinds of disadvantage have you experienced in your teaching career for students who are more able? Well, certainly having taught through um, what we've been through in the last few years, as you've said already, I joined uh, NASA's CEO um, in September 2021. So I taught, my subject is mathematics. Um, you could probably tell by you know some of the courses that I've run, um, but in my subject of mathematics and actually seeing you know students coping through COVID incredibly well, but how we actually are able to ensure that some of our disadvantaged learners who haven't necessarily, and this isn't always the case, of course, but haven't necessarily got that support outside of school, it's really important that we provide that for those students within the actual school curriculum. Thank you. And there's this category exceptionally able. Are you able to say a little bit more about what that might mean? I think I could sum it up in essence. I mean, as it probably makes common sense, it's where the abilities and needs of the exceptionally able exceed those of the more able. Um, if I refer to the national strategies in 2008, um, it was stated then that learners who demonstrate or have the potential to demonstrate extremely high levels of ability compared to their peers across the entire population. So, guidance then was your top one two percent of students and i think that guidance really focused on if you like the adjective extremely and by the comparison with peers in all schools so those students that will be competing with like-minded students across the entire country in our case um, as opposed to more able learners being those that are more able within their own if you like year group class or school college so does that come from key stage statutory indicators? Not always. Um, I think we'll get on to some of those questions later because I think the difficult point here, if we don't, if you like, implement a curriculum that really enables students to show these sorts of characteristics and we don't then assess in the same way, then I think it's a case of some of these students can be lost um, and you'll find that you won't necessarily unpick and identify, you know, the, the abilities of all of these students. Um, if I use an example there, um, in my subject uh, of maths, it's if I look at some of the characteristics that I would see, 
um, in mathematics, I think we'd all see that it'd be those students that grasp the structure of a problem. They are able to generalize, develop chains of reasoning. Um, I think some students, interestingly, when you give them some of the thinking mathematically questions um, from organizations like Enrich, beyond possibly the, the normal curriculum, if I use normal in inverted commas, but seeing those students that use symbols and language accurately and effectively when they're working through different styles of problems. I've, I've certainly found that I unearth students that weren't necessarily achieving the top percentages in their normal assessments. I'm using the word normal again. What we want to do is make this challenge normal, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but those students that can think flexibly backwards and forwards, um, they're able to leave out steps and thinking in abbreviated forms. Um, students that can remember generalized relationships, problem types, basically real ability to solve problems and develop those problem solving skills. They're not always the students that will get the highest percentages. Hence why some of these students might not have actually been identified in some situations. So it's important that if we actually enhance our curriculum in my subject, where we encourage students to think mathematically or think about problem solving questions that, if, if you like, you teach the definition or the, or the skill in mathematics, but then it's the questions you use thereafter that really enable students to think deeply about what they're trying to solve. So it might be multi-level questions. It might be questions that involve a previously taught topic alongside the current one. And that's a way of identifying students that actually have that, you know, if you like, tenacious ability to problem solve. And they're not always the ones that will, you know, achieve the highest in a test. Or even if they do, they'll be equal with other students that aren't necessarily have those same problems, higher, you know, higher level problem solving skills, but they may just be hard working precise. So it's how we differentiate between those students to analyze and, you know, understand the abilities of all of the children in front of us, I think is really important. Yeah, that approach to flexible problem solving is interesting. It reminds me of that maths paper a few years back, which had supposedly a nearly impossible question towards the end, which involved a student putting together lots and lots of different tools to calculate the area of a shape. I remember having a conversation with a colleague saying, well, don't we want our final questions on maths papers to be quite hard so we can identify the skills that the really strong actually possess in a way that isn't confined by kind of narrow straight line thinking of the curriculum and if we don't give them those opportunities in the normal classroom then it's going to be very difficult for them to obviously achieve in in those circumstances so i think that's the curriculum that's really important that we give opportunities it's not there's a lot to cover we know that but actually by developing this deep thinking and the perseverance that students need to problem solve they will actually become quicker in their learning and more effective um, going forward so I think it's that it's that balance between, yes, there's a lot of different skills we need to go through. And I'm not arguing against, you know, schools that use a mastery approach by any means, but it's what we do with the knowledge when the students have the knowledge, what we do with the questions that we pose is then stretching that type of thinking, which is so important, not just at school, but obviously beyond in the real world. Yeah, certainly. So we might see, we might pick up able children in our classrooms through <coughs> internal and external assessments and that would give us some sense of their ability in relation to a set of knowledge or skills. Are there any more general characteristics of able children in the classroom though that go beyond assessment itself? Yes, I mean I think 
we'll identify if we go back to our exceptionally able students we'd be able to see those in the way where they can possess extensive general knowledge for example so away from mathematics perhaps in, in prime rules um, there are those students that will have extensive general knowledge and often know more than the teacher in some cases those that show good insight into the cause effect relationships they can easily grasp underlying principles and need the minimum of explanation and I think, again, similar to the maths, it's those that have those, they're able to make generalizations and extract the relevant points from complex material. I think that's obviously really, really important. Um, I think there are others that will have a rapid and thorough comprehension on the whole idea or, or concept that you're delivering. Um, so the, the list is really endless. I think that's sometimes the difficulty in why we need our individuals. So whether it's year groups in primary school, um, subject leaders in primary school, subject leaders in secondary school, it's really important going back to that first point that there is discussion and agreement on what the terminology and definitions are within the school so that then the school can work together. Because I think you can have individual departments, individual year groups, but if the whole school are working together, then the impact we have on the students is obviously far greater. Certainly. Have you encountered any um, situations in your career where colleagues might bridle at the language of the able as potentially being the language of elitism? I, I, I haven't found that so much in, in my um, teaching career. I think it's important to acknowledge that you know, these students are like any other. They're a group of students that have their own uh, needs and teachers need to obviously address those needs to be effective. But the, th the thing I find extraordinary, if I'm being honest, is that we find that schools that provide effectively for more able learners, what you'll actually see is that it will raise the achievement for a much wider group of learners in a school. So we have our NACE Challenge Award, um, and that's a whole school improvement tool uh, with a focus you know, on the lens, if you like, on the more able. Um, and what we have, all of these schools, nearly 500 that have achieved the NACE um, Challenge Award accreditation, we don't have this elite group of students doing fantastically well and achieving highly at the top with a big gap to the rest. It's that rising tide effect. So for me, I find it frustrating sometimes that that isn't always seen we're not just talking about more able learners but providing that challenge that cognitive wobble i think james nottingham refers it to where we're we're encouraging students to think hard and actually struggle at times um that is actually good teaching and learning uh, so whether you know whatever the school is doing some use a fisher fray model for example that idea that the responsibility moves over to the students in a gradual way there are very many different structures there's not one way of doing these things but there is no doubt looking at our schools um, challenge award schools that where we are providing effectively for the more able learners it is important to understand that actually we have a much wider group of learners that increase their challenge as a consequence. So for me, it's very difficult that we can't afford not to let students deep thinkly um, because we've seen the impact it has on a much wider group of learners too. Yeah, so if we've got these schools putting these students in for their standard assessments, how well do those distinguish between the able and simply the highly skilled in a specific subject area? 
for me, it, it, it's not one thing that goes with the other. We're, we're teaching students the skills that they need to be effective learners. And what we'll find is it's not at the, if you like, I think sometimes think there's so much to cover with the knowledge um, and obviously a knowledge-based curriculum. But for me, if we are still teaching students alongside that, how they can learn effectively and have an understanding of how they do that, then it's not one or the other. You will get both. So these students will achieve highly in their statutory assessments as well. Mm. And do these ABLE students tend to perform uniformly well in many subjects or are they limited to a number of small, similarly related subjects? I think we have students that, you know, are extremely ABLE across the board. And then we have students, which is why I like the ABLE definition, perhaps more than the, some of the gifted definition of the 2000s, because mm -hmm. there are students that are ABLE or exceptionally ABLE in more narrow areas of the curriculum. Um, I, I can think of, you know, students that I've taught that perhaps came in secondary school, you know, struggling with mathematics, but it was purely, and I think that's one of the examples that's often used, isn't it? There, is, there are some outstanding mathematicians um, that may have a, a low level of uh, English, for example, so their, yeah, their problems is excessive. They're often seen yeah. as two ends of the same seesaw, aren't yeah. they, really? Yeah, but there, in, in answer to your question, there are some students that will be able across the board, um, and then there are some that will have their areas of expertise, and I think that's why it's so important. I mean, I'm talking from a secondary level here um, that we have heads of department involved in this process of what what being more able means in their subject area, and identifying those because you know some of these students will go on to be highly successful at A-level and beyond, and they wouldn't necessarily appear if you were taking, you know, in some cases, I'm not saying this is how you should do it, but an average of all of their subjects, they wouldn't necessarily show in those higher, you know, at the higher end of the spectrum. Okay, that makes sense. And if we think briefly, perhaps, about primary, are they easier or more difficult to pick up in that particular context? I think it's no easier or if I think it's it's consistent across the board. I mean, we've got NACE associates that work, provide expertise for early years all the way through to key stage five. And it's that same essence of providing for more able learners is about creating a curriculum which gives opportunities for all of those students to flourish. Um, so for me, you know, that ability can be re revealed, as I've said already, across a range of domains or more generally, and not only in the traditional academic subjects. Um, I know the gifted and talented sort of separated things out in terms of the talent-based subjects and more able brings it all together, which I think for me, I think is a, is a good step. Um, but whether it's primary or secondary, it's how we create that challenge in the classroom, what we do with students um when they've already achieved what they need to do in a particular topic area whatever that might be and how we keep them you know motivated and stretched and challenged um, while perhaps some of their counterparts will be catching up with the mastery of whatever subject is being delivered so whether it's early years all the way through to key stage five i think the approach is the same it's how we you know look at empowering our students there's one part of that i think where we could talk about independent learning as well um and that's from you know early years all the way through to key stage five again i wouldn't separate up i think the phase the principles are the same whatever the phases of teaching um obviously the content and the the actual um subject knowledge will be different at different stages but the actual approach is 
I think the key for me is how we provide that challenge in the curriculum to keep, you know, all of our students inquiring, having that love of their subject. And if you like, I think those eureka moments where, you know, at first they really struggle because I think that's a, we'll talk about perfectionistic characteristics, obviously this evening as well with uh, Professor Hill. Um, But it's really important that we teach students. I mean, back to my subject of maths, it's good to make mistakes, you know, we don't want students to not want, you know, always to have perfect answers. I think I would argue, I've always said to my classes, if you never make mistakes, the chances are that you're not stretching yourself as as high as you should. Um, so it's it's all of those things come into play that we want to challenge and support. But at the same time, we're not leaving students to go adrift, but we are expecting them to be challenged to think Hard. I talked about James Nottingham earlier, that, that cognitive wobble. And that's where the expertise of the teacher really comes into play because it's a really fine line. Too much challenge causes anxiety, but challenge with the skills to deal with it is what provides that flow, um, which we want from all of our learners. Brilliant. Thank you, Rob. That's really useful for setting up the rest of the show tonight. Um, we'll break for the news now, and then Andy will take us through some of his recent research into the challenges posed by perfectionism. So here's the news. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan has addressed school leaders at the Church of England National Education Conference. In a speech that recognised the achievements of Church of England schools and of teachers and leaders in schools across the country, she defined education as something that lets you do things you couldn't beforehand. She also reflected on her own experiences of being educated in a faith school, although it was a different denomination, Catholic. She spoke about the importance of a faith which is still a core part of who I am and recognised the work of faith schools, particularly Anglican schools, and the role they play in educating young people. She described the Church of England as one of my department's most valued partners, as the largest provider of academy trusts. Ms Keegan went on to say that her department would protect the schools so that when they became academies they retained the statutory freedoms and protections that apply to church schools. She also used the speech to comment on standards and said, I agree with the Prime Minister on maths to 18 and praised a former teacher of hers, Mr Ashcroft, who helped her realise my one opportunity. The speech was not without reference to planned industrial action by teachers in the National Education Union when she commented that for teachers to have an impact, they need to be in school and stated that we will be funding schools in real terms at the highest level in history. The speech closed with a statement that her door is always open, but asked that you now work with me to keep as many children in schools as possible during the disruptive strike action. Ms Keegan ended with a focus on collaboration to make sure 
our education system flourishes for all children. Half of state schools in England and Wales will close on Wednesday as a result of the planned industrial action, according to reports in many media outlets. The action by NEU coincides with that being taken by civil servants, university staff and train drivers. While schools may close, many will remain open to pupils identified as vulnerable or at risk, as well as some schools offering places to the children of critical workers. The latest data from the Higher Education Statistics Agency shows that the number of EU students choosing to study in the UK has dropped by half since the UK left the EU. Enrolments by EU nationals dropped by 53%, from around 64,000 to 31,000 between 2020 and 2022. Whilst the number of non-EU nationals did increase at the same time period, the data shows that the UK universities still faced significant shortfalls. The exit from the EU and the changing international fee policy saw EU student fees rise from around £9,000 to as high as 38000 The decline has been particularly sharp in student numbers from Italy, Germany and France. Similar falls have been seen in Scotland with many mourning the demise of the EU's Erasmus scheme, as well as the loss of diversity brought to courses by students from the EU. Universities UK said the changes in numbers had dented the finances of some universities and impoverished campus life. The HuffPost featured an article focusing on new data which shows that 87% of teenagers want better and more inclusive sex education. The survey by student discount app Student Beans found that 39% did not feel represented in the sex education they received. 27% of girls surveyed admitted they did not feel comfortable setting and communicating boundaries with a partner, compared to 23% of male respondents. 89% of all respondents said they did not see LGBTQIA themes in the teaching. With Generation Z having the highest percentage of non-straight people, almost double that of millennials, perhaps it's time for another review. Finally, Schools Week focuses on Ofsted's announcement on how it will conduct thematic reviews of alternative provision. Visits will take place in the spring and summer terms, with a national report out in the autumn. The visits will not result in judgments and the report will not identify local areas specifically, although they will be listed separately. There will be a focus on how AP supports children to stay in mainstream and full details are available on the Schools Week website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about GDPR, an acronym that has bounded around and caused quite a stir when it was first introduced back in 2018. GDPR stands for General Data Protection Regulation and it's governed by the ICO, which is the Information Controller's Office, an independent body set up by the government to uphold information rights. Ah, thanks Steve, that's crystal clear now, I hear you say. What does it mean to the general classroom teacher. Well, your school will have a policy, which you will have signed somewhere to say you've read it. If you haven't, it might be worth taking a look. In it, there'll be an outline of measures to protect data and usually a process of investigation in the event of a data breach. A data breach in a school is when personal data is compromised and a person can be identified, for example, first name and last name. In a school, 
Breaches can be as serious as the introduction of ransomware where data is locked by a cyber attack or as simple as the wrong letter being sent to the wrong carers. Now the question is how do we protect ourselves? First, if you're still wandering around with the USB pen hanging off your lanyard, make sure it's encrypted. There is lots of free encryption software around. If you can, migrate your data into the school's cloud. This puts the onus back on the school to keep the data safe. It's also backed up regularly. I know what you'll say next. If I'm in the cloud and the internet goes down, I can't get my planning. Yes, you're correct, but your school laptop will be encrypted, so you can save current files locally to enable working offline. If you have a machine with a small memory like a Chromebook, sync what you need and leave the rest in the cloud. With the top ads on a search for school data breach, all reading claim around £10,000 today. Obviously, no win, no fee. Do you want to cost your school that much money? I'll leave you with this. If you take a digital register and display it while you take it, could it be classed as a data breach. As always, I'd love to hear what you want to know about tech. Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. I'm discussing the teaching of able children this evening. We've just heard from Rob Lightfoot about able children and how we might recognize them. And I'm pleased to say that my next guest, Professor Andy P. Hill, has dedicated a significant proportion of his time to studying the relationship between able students and perfectionistic behaviours. It's great to have you on the show tonight, Andy. Great to be here. By way of introduction to this theme, could you please tell me what we mean by perfectionism in the context of able students? Sure. Um, so just as... Uh people or students can be described as conscientious or neurotic. Um, they can also be described as perfectionistic. Uh, and when we talk about being perfectionistic, we're normally referring to um, people who display two main characteristics. So they tend to have unre unrealistically high standards and they tend to be overly critical of themselves and others as they pursue those standards. And where do those standards come from, do you think? Well, that's a very good question. Um, so uh, we think uh, that perfectionism and perfectionistic behaviours um, develop as a combination of some form of genetic predisposition. So there are um, of the trait. Uh, and then we also think that it's learned. It's learned from the social environment. Um, most of the research has focused on uh, parental behaviours. Uh, so at some point, people uh, internalise and express um, perfectionism. Um, and those standards uh, are normally kind of located in their immediate environment. Uh, so they kind of gauge what they think uh, is appropriate or necessary in order for them to gain a sense of achievement. Thank you. That's really quite powerful in helping us think about this particular theme. I understand there's an increasing trend of young people with high levels of perfectionistic characteristics. Why is this the case? Um, so because we've we use the same questionnaires and we have used the same questionnaires to measure perfectionism for, for some time, we are able to track uh, perfectionism scores over time in different cohorts. And as you said, there, there is some evidence that perfectionism is increasing over time. So young people now appear to be more demanding of themselves and, and of others. 
and they also report that they believe that other people expect them to be perfect um, more so than in, in the past. Um, it's challenging to explain why that is. Uh, we think it's partly linked to social pressures um, to look and behave in certain ways. Um, and, and we also think it's linked to increasing achievement pressures uh, to perform well in school, to get a good job and, and, and generally to be successful. Um, uh, to, to, to circle back onto parents, uh, we also think parental behaviours are changing. Um, and, and, and there's a lot more focus on um, performance in schools. Uh, there's a lot more involvement of parents uh, in, in schooling decisions. So while we're not, um, we can't say for certain why perfectionism is increasing, um, we, we think it's, it's due to a combination of, uh, of those things. Have rising assessment grades in terminal exams um, played some role as well, do you think? Uh, could, could well be. Uh, the current generation of young people are the most tested, uh, sifted and sorted generation we've had. Um, so uh, if you're looking for kind of external um, reasons for young people to start to uh, decide or internalise the, the belief that they need to perform perfectly um, in order to be successful, then certainly kind of the testing regime and testing structures that we have um, certainly will be playing a role. But isn't perfectionism quite a positive trait in some aspects of life? Should we surely not be looking to improve ourselves to the best version of ourselves that we can? Um, So unfortunately, um, the vast majority of evidence we have suggests that perfectionism is problematic. Um, it's problematic for a, a range of reasons. So, so while you will get some energization of uh, effort, you'll get commitment, organization, people who are perfectionistic also tend to have uh, a great deal of difficulty dealing with failure. Um, they tend to procrastinate. Um, they also... Um, tend to experience more emotional uh, difficulties as, as part of that kind of achievement striving process. Um, what you want is you want people to enjoy challenge. You want people to uh, be able to learn from failure and you want people to be able to stay the course uh, in order to kind of accrue the skills that are required for success in the long term. And unfortunately, people who are perfectionistic are ill-equipped for the bumps in the road that you inevitably encounter. Yeah, that kind of takes me to a sense of my own teaching, actually. Often the easiest children to teach at A-level are the students that finished on B at GCSE, certainly in my subject English, rather than the ones that finished on A, R and A, because the students on B have had some experience of finding something difficult, certainly at GCSE level. Yeah, so... um... One of the things about being perfectionistic is uh, they tend to curate the experiences they have um, in order to avoid looking incompetent or foolish or failing. And what that does is it it de-skills them um, with um, the uh, experiences uh, and... um, skills required in order to navigate successfully challenge um so you know what you're saying there um 
I think speaks to the point of the importance of setbacks and the importance of uh, developing strategies that allow you um, to deal with uh, difficulties, which which inevitably come at some point, no matter how talented or skilled you are. Yeah, that certainly seems to be the case as I as I spend my time looking back on the fifteen or so years I've been teaching in schools. Certainly, that sense that the challenge encountered earlier is better dealt with earlier rather than later on. Are there any particular? measures of perfectionism that you're working with? Are there different ways that we might think about it as a concept? Yeah, so there are a number of different uh, measures that we use. Uh, One of the most popular and widely used measures focuses on um, the direction of the standards. Um, And what I mean by that is whether or not people are imposing perfectionistic standards on themselves, uh, whether or not they're imposing it on other people, um, or whether they believe that other people, significant others normally, teachers, parents, peers, expect them uh, to be perfect. And what you do then is you study the different implications of those three different flavours of perfectionism. Um, and, they, and, and they are very much related to uh, different consequences. So are some particularly more challenging than others, do you think? Yeah, uh, um, um, unfortunately... Um, the, the, the type of perfectionism that involves uh, perceptions that others uh, are demanding of you, uh, parents, peers and uh, teachers, as I said, um, is the most debilitating. It's the most debil- debilitating because it's quite an oppressive worldview that you can develop and internalise. And, th- and there's very little you can do when the standards are perceived to be other- held by others. Mm. Um, and... and Unfortunately, in extreme circumstances, that uh, element of perfectionism is related to uh, kind of clinical outcomes. Uh, Whenever you see perfectionism resulting in mental health difficulties, it tends to have uh, tends to be more strongly related to to that aspect of perfectionism. So has that featured much in your recent studies? Yes, so we regularly study uh, mental health and well-being along with perfectionism. Uh, we know that um, perfectionism is a vulnerability factor for mental health issues. Um, w- while in and of itself, it's not a mental health disorder, it certainly can place people uh, at risk. Um, we, we know that some some particular clinical outcomes tend to be consistently related to perfectionism. So things like eating disorders, depression, um and, and, and in the more extreme cases, uh, suicidality, so suicide ideation and, and suicide attempts. So um, in its most extreme and debilitating forms, it, 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 it's hugely problematic. Thankfully, for, you know, for most people, being perfectionistic just involves learning to live a little better uh, with the self-criticism um, that comes with perfectionism. But as I said, in extreme cases, it's, it's, it's highly problematic. And are most of these studies focused on secondary and older students? Are there many studies about how perfectionism operates for the very youngest children in our education system? Um, so perfectionism has been studied in a, in a wide range of settings, not just an educational setting. Uh, the, the majority of research that has taken place in an education context, they tend to be older. Uh, 
are quite often uh, university students, but when they're not, they tend to be older secondary students. There's very uh, few studies um, on preteens. Uh, that's that's for a number of reasons, um, not least the measurement difficulties, because this is a kind of paper and pencil questionnaire-based assessment of personality. So sometimes you run into difficulties with uh, comprehension of, of the scales. Uh, so the majority of the evidence uh, base we have uh, tends to be um, uh, kind of young, young adults or uh, older teens. So if we're thinking about those older students, they've got usually some kind of public examination in their sites. Is there anything teachers can do to support students with high levels of perfectionistic characteristic in these situations? Yes. Um, so what I should say is, is, is if teachers ever have any concerns about perfectionism and the mental health of their students, they'll obviously, obviously have uh, procedures in place in their schools that they can follow. Um, to support that, some of the work that we do uh, has been around increasing teachers' awareness of perfectionism and being able to spot the signs and signals of perfectionism. Outside of that situation, um, a lot of our work is focused on expectations, language and behaviours in the classroom. As you suggested earlier, we believe that some classrooms are more perfectionistic than others. Um, so in our training, um, we ask teachers often to think about what they do and what they say and to ident identify the things that might encourage students to believe that everything needs to be just right or just perfect. Um, and we, we have a heavy focus on kind of failing well uh, or learning to fail well, encouraging creativity rather than competition uh, and setting standards that are reasonable, flexible and governed by individual progress. So um, I think teachers have a, have a pivotal role to play in whether or not uh, perfectionism is reinforced or uh, mitigated by the immediate uh, learning environment or climate that's created. And is there any role that parents can play in supporting children in these situations too? Yeah, uh, again, absolutely. Look, um, because uh, the vast majority of research so far has focused on par parental behaviour, um, any successful interventions uh, will likely require uh, the involvement um, of parents where where possible. Uh, so much in the same way that we uh, encourage uh, teachers to think and reflect critically on, on their behaviours, we also ask uh, parents to think about the perfectionistic pressures within the home and the emphasis on, on achievement um, rather than development. Okay, so this sense of looking for the individual to take agency to developing themselves. Uh, that's def that's definitely part of it. Like um, increasing a sense of control, autonomy um, over uh, your own development, rather than that feeling like you need to meet external pressures or standards, um, is 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 one way of helping and supporting uh, young people if they uh, are highly perfectionistic. And has the research again suggested anything specifically unique to individual groups of? perfectionistic students? Are there any ways we can spot them beyond their performance in tests? Um, well, 
I think normally, uh, normally people are, are, are pretty good at identifying perfectionism, either in themselves or in other people. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're the typical meticulous, uh, bad losers, uh, very, um, can, can uh, be very uh, responsive to the successes and failures that they have. They, they, they kind of catastrophize. Uh, they are very kind of rigid black and white thinkers. Uh, so so through, through our kind of outreach and educational work, I think people and, and teachers are normally pretty good at identifying who, who these people are. Isn't there a sense of comparison that takes place quite often in students of this sort? sense of comparison sorry yes a kind of comparison with the rest of their cohort or the rest of their peer yeah yeah uh, a huge focus on comparing themselves to others in an attempt to gain as much information as they can about their own adequacy um so again coming back to your early question about about what teachers can do uh one positive they can, thing they can do is, is try to create in, uh, environments and, and classrooms where it's it's much more difficult to get that comparative information. Um, and yes, yeah, quite frustrating actually. As soon as you give students a test score back, even privately, the first thing they do is go out the classroom door and talk about how well they did in whatever test. Yeah, so they as love you can it. Imagine, yeah, they, they do. And what they're doing there is is they're tr they're trying to calibrate themselves on on whether or not they should think or feel positively or negatively about how how they've done. Um, and, and for for people who are perfectionistic, because they have a lot of self esteem riding on how well they've done, um, that that kind of information, um, you know, is is highly emotive. Uh, for them but if, if if you're only comparing to how good you could have done or how you've done previously you don't really need that information at all yeah it's strange isn't it i mean i've experimented with not giving students grades and um, marks back and they, they get quite fed up if you tell them well this is a really good piece of work i'm very happy with it and i think you should be happy with it too they're, they're not so keen on that idea many of them they think in quite well, traditional ways in terms of assessment marks. Many of our students, but but but, but given that we've we've got a kind of backdrop of increasing perfectionism and mental health issues in our young people, maybe that's the cultural shift that we need. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been it's been debated for for quite some time. I'm never quite sure which way we should go. Partly because we're required, of course, to report assessment performances to the parents a certain number of times a year. Now, I can imagine some homes where the parents sit down immediately with little Johnny and they look at him and say, well, you haven't done quite so well in science. We were expecting better of you. And I can imagine some households where the parents don't show the results to the children at all. Is there an approach you would recommend? Uh, well, I, I think that has to be uh, handled on, a, on an individual basis. Um, I think... There, there is nothing inherently problematic about assessment. Um, that, I think that, that's worth worth saying, um, and obviously it's extremely useful. Um, it's the it's the irrational sense of importance that becomes attached to uh, assessment that, that's problematic, um, and and it's the the tying of a sense of self esteem and self worth to the, the 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 next assessment or the last assessment 
that makes um, it a, an extremely stressful environment to be in. Um, and I think it sends the wrong um, messages to, to young people on you know how how they should develop themselves, how they, they should think of themselves in relation to achievement. Mm. Yeah, certainly. I think that's what it's mainly about, isn't it? I mean, if you were to abolish assessments, you'd still want to find some means of working out how far you'd gone in a particular subject so or a particular skill. So I think we're always going to have that assessment there. It's about how we manage the outcomes of that assessment and then the future actions, I think. Yeah, abs- abs- absolutely. I think if we didn't have assessment, we'd, we'd invent it. <laughs> <laughs> we certainly would. Um, that's a great introduction to the sense of the issues around perfectionism how much are policymakers paying attention to the outcomes of this research andy yeah so part of our work is engaging with policymakers um we we have given um talks at the department of education uh a few years ago they set up a, a task force looking at transitions between uh different um uh, uh, parts of the education system, uh, and they included perfectionism uh, as a risk factor um, for poorer transition. Um, so, yeah, you know, these conversations are ongoing all, all the time, and and, and thanks to um, uh, opportunities like this to talk about perfectionism and organisations like NACE, uh, we're able to to better share what the research findings are. Uh, and, and try to influence the way people think um, about perfectionism and, and, and change the, uh, their practice. And where's your research going next? Is it going to look at different age groups or is it going to look at different particular characteristics or particular support methods? Yeah, so um, we are extremely interested in the, in the idea of the perfectionistic climate. Uh, in the perfectionistic classroom. So the, 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 the purposeful things that you can do or change within a particular achievement context that may help either uh, reduce the development of perfectionism or moderate the effects of perfectionism uh, if it exists already in, uh, in the classroom. So we're kind of tr- trialling different types of uh, interventions. Some include teachers' training, some include... Uh, more direct uh, work with students, uh, so we, we're we're trying to figure out uh, in what ways are we uh, c- can we support both teachers and students in addressing um, the kind of perils of perfectionism. Well, thank you very much, Andy, for your explanation of this fascinating topic. You've really put the research into a real world context, I think, for our listeners, and it certainly presents classroom teachers and all involved in our educational establishments with some significant issues to consider. In the final part of the show, we will consider how NACE's school-based work supports educators in enabling ABLE students to flourish and thrive. So we'll bring both you, Andy, and Robert back for that conversation. And that's going to come straight after this. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools <laughs> in the UK and beyond. 
Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Well, welcome back. So for the final part of the show, we're going to talk about the issue of what teachers can do in schools to support students who are working through these perfectionistic tendencies. Professor Andy Hills just outlined some of the research findings on the effects of perfectionism on the educational experiences of able children. The National Association for Able Children and Education works directly with schools to help them manage some of the issues around provision for the able that we've explored this evening. Rob Lightfoot, are you able to take us through some examples of NACE's school-based work, please? Um, so in terms of perfectionism, first of all, I think um, this is a subject that's always concerned more able leads, um, that we can recognise where students might be struggling. It might be evident in burnout and I think in secondary schools, because um, we were looking, first of all, in the areas of years nine to 11 with this research, um, that when you've got the coursework burnout and I think students really suffering because the language given by teachers wasn't necessarily helpful. Although, as Andy's already said, the difficulty here is that it's different for everybody. Not everybody has these types of perfectionistic characteristics. So I think for us, it's what could we do as a school to inform students of the possible dangers of having high levels of perfectionistic characteristics. And we developed, um, in line with uh, Andy Hill at uh, York St John University, a single classroom-based lesson where we were aiming to improve student-reported knowledge about perfectionism and also the willingness to seek support if needed. So we worked with um, Andy to develop questionnaires that we could do and um, produce data before and after the intervention to see what impact we had. Um, so all of these resources are available because it's part of the, the research project that we did. So if you've got um, some interest, if this is an issue you think you have with a number of your students at your school, then I would recommend looking at the resources here um, to do a lesson within PSHE. Um, and it fitted very well for, for my school because we have a year looking at mental well-being. Um, and we felt that this fitted in very well with that curriculum as part of that um, series of lessons. Are you able to take us a little through this series of lessons associated with the PSHCE work? And I've got a file I can play for our listeners as well a little later on when you're ready. Yeah, I mean, it might be worth, if, if you can, uh, Christopher, if you play that now, because the lesson really centred around this information video that was produced by um, York St John University. So I don't know if it's possible to play that now, and then that will feed through to, I can really go through the main objectives of the lesson that followed. Or have I put you yeah, on the spot, Christopher? I should, uh, yep, I should be able to do that now. I'm just queuing up the file Great. and ready to play. Here we go. Perfectionism means having unrealistic expectations and thinking and feeling negatively when those expectations aren't met. Perfectionism exists in everyone to some degree and it comes in three flavours. Expecting yourself to be perfect. 
This won't mean you work hard and perform better, it means lots of unnecessary anxiety and worry. Expecting others to be perfect. This can impact negatively on your relationships. Who wants to be around someone who's demanding and unhappy with you all the time? Or thinking other people, like a parent, teacher or coach, expects you to be perfect. Believing others only like you if you perform, look or behave the way they want is the worst flavour. Some have a mix of flavours. Some have lots, others a little. But most are somewhere in between and it can impact negatively on your mental health. The consequences depend on what flavour and how much of it you have. Too much and things start to get stressful, like wearing a heavy backpack that gets heavier until you can't carry it anymore. Wanting to be good at things is great. Wanting to be perfect just makes the backpack heavier. The amount of perfectionism in young people is increasing. However, you can put the heavy backpack down. If you think perfectionism is impacting your mental health, speak to someone you trust, like a parent, teacher or coach. They'll help you get the support you need. If you just want to know how to be a little less critical of yourself and others, perhaps learn how to enjoy things a little more, here are three top tips. One, don't base your self-esteem on how you perform. Instead, try to feel good about things you have more control over, such as being a kind person or how hard you work. Two, cut yourself some slack. No one's perfect, mistakes happen. When they do, focus on the positives. Three, getting things done is better than getting things perfect. Try not to put things off and avoid overthinking. When it's done, it's done. That's great. Thanks, Christopher. So the anticipated outcomes that we were looking for was to increase knowledge of perfectionism characteristics, um, to increase student confidence in talking about perfectionism, and thirdly, an increased willingness to seek help for self and others if required or if needed. Um, so the main aim, I mean, there were three points. Um, as Andy said, it's not just more able learners that may have high levels of perfectionistic characteristics. So this research was carried out with all students um, in 10, so 14 and 15 year olds, um, which raised some interesting discussions, which I'll talk about one or two in a moment. But the main objective of the lessons was to differentiate or to understand the difference between doing things well and doing things with high levels of perfectionistic characteristics. So there was a card sort that was created with statements that were one or the other, and students could look at which, if you like, area they think they fitted in. So that supported them understanding the difference between doing things well and doing things with high levels of perfectionistic characteristics. And then, as Andy said before um, the last break, the other aspect of the lesson was to look at the difference between what we called in the video the three flavours of perfectionism. Um, I don't know if you want to jump in, Andy, but as Andy said before the break, um, there are those three areas you wanted to teach the students where you expect yourself to be perfect, so that self-driven issue, um, where you expect others to be perfect, that can cause problems with social settings um, because they can be the irritant that irritates everybody else because they expect too much of them. Um, and then the third flavour, which Andy commented on, that is the most debilitating or can be the most debilitating, which is where students have the expectation they think others expect them to be perfect, so whether it's teachers, parents, coaches. So we also had a card sort based on statements 
of the three different flavours to ensure students had a good understanding of, of those three things. And then the last point was this idea of a spectrum. So we start the lesson with a spectrum from, we all get somewhere on the spectrum. So at the start, students after the video had a feel for where they were on the spectrum, whether they were at the low end or the high end. And then again, we get them to reevaluate that at the end of the lesson and discuss, you know, where students have, you know, perhaps changed quite considerably with what they've learned within the lesson. And there was one part in the video where it says getting things done is better than getting things perfect. And I do remember this student sort of commenting, hang on then, so how did I get a detention? Because I handed in a homework that was a load of rubbish. And we had a look on his chart, on his spectrum, and he put himself as very low levels of perfectionistic characteristics. So the lesson raised some really interesting discussion. Um, but what it did do when we looked at the evaluation questions, so the format of the questions, we asked them, can you recognise the features of perfectionism? I know where to get support for myself or others if I needed to. I know where perfectionism comes from. There are things you can do if you need help with perfectionism. It's important to get support for perfectionism if you need it. And then whether they found the lesson useful, interesting and informative. And the research, which is also available um, via our website, um, gives those results. But it was very much that it indicated a positive impact of the lesson on the knowledge of perfectionism and willingness to seek support if needed. So this isn't something that's going to solve the problem with students that are already facing high levels of perfectionistic characteristics. And the one point I did want to say is that I think it's really important, as we say with our resources, I think it's far more valuable if you decide to look at these resources and use them to work with the well-being teams in your schools, because that definitely added to the impact we had that, first of all, there may have been some students where the lesson wouldn't have been appropriate um, for, for various reasons, but also that they're aware of when the lessons were taking place so that if students did come and ask some questions, then that team was far more, if you like, um, able to help those students more effectively. So overall, the actual impact met the objectives we were trying to do. Um, and, I, you know, students did comment um, that I think most importantly, that it made them reflect and understand most importantly, when things were perhaps getting out of hand, and then to be able to speak to whether it was a parent or a teacher, just to get some guidance and support. Um, because for me, it's always been an issue. Um, you know, students, the, the, I mean, it's, as you say, people think often that perfectionism is a good thing. Um, it's often that interview question, isn't it? You know, tell me one of your weaknesses. People say, oh, I'm very perfectionistic. And it gives that impression that you work hard and you take things seriously. But there is that downside to these characteristics that I think we need to be aware of. And I, I know I've talked quite a lot there, but I just wanted to make one more point before we move on. It was interesting, the teachers themselves that were trying to deliver the lesson they really reflected on their language and their behaviour in class, which many felt actually wouldn't have been supporting students with these high levels of perfectionistic characteristics. So as with anything else, we do a really difficult job as teachers, but it's about knowing our class really well. And I think the pressures on teachers to get the best results they can from their classes, sometimes perhaps at this secondary level, they may forget the fact that students have you know nine or ten different subjects 
And if all of the teachers are putting this pressure on in the same way, then I think that's often what leads to this early burnout with some of these students. But more importantly, it's something I hope we can do in school so that when students go on beyond school to university in the world of work, that there are some strategies that they can consider um, when they're perhaps away from that security blanket of being in a school or a college, um, going to university, you know, avoiding perhaps that later burnout and dropout. And as we said before the break and in my first session, you know, teaching students that mistakes are perfectly normal and normalising those to ensure that we learn from them and develop that way. Thank you. That's a very interesting angle, actually, if we think about mistakes, because, of course, many teachers' jobs are to iron out the mistakes and to eliminate them. I wonder if there's any research, Andy, on the degree to which many teachers in schools were once perfectionistic students themselves. Uh, not as far as I'm aware. Um, there is some interesting uh, research looking at... Um, sports coaches and how um, perfectionism in sports coaches can predict perfectionism in athletes um, and, and similarly perfectionism in parents can predict uh, perfectionism in, in their uh, children. Um, I would fully anticipate uh, similar relationships. Um, I think uh, through either through kind of modelling um either through uh their kind of overt behaviors and languages if you have a perfectionistic teacher it's 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 almost certain that that, that they're going to project uh or inject into the environment uh those kind of perfectionistic themes and, and you know their own perfectionism uh may well be a reflection of a broader school environment or school culture that, was, it, that itself is responding to uh, broader pressures. Thanks. Yes, yeah, it's something I've often wondered about because I think I probably once considered myself to be a perfectionistic student. And I think of certain aspects of teaching where you're kind of required to be perfect in some, some particular context, because if you're not, the consequences could be quite catastrophic. Yeah, well, I, I think you have to draw the distinction between um, trying to do things really, really well uh, and the requirement for things to be done really, really well. There are a lot of contexts in which performance matters. Um, you have to draw a distinction between that and perfectionism. Perfectionism is just as much about how people think and feel about themselves as it is about the standards that they have. So you can still be a very successful student and have high standards, but not be perfectionistic. Okay, thank you. Robert, how did the teachers in this PSHCE project respond to the guidance and the resources you presented them with? In, in exactly the same way, there were a number of them that actually, first of all, considered themselves um, and how they do not respond well to um, criticism, for example, um, constructive criticism, I suppose the word is rather than criticism. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, they acknowledged that within themselves, they probably had high levels of perfectionistic characteristics. And as I said previously, they were probably presenting work um, in a way that 
wasn't, as I say, supporting students that had these high levels of characteristics themselves. And it enabled us to think. Now, there was one of our schools um, that took this further and actually did a training session to the school um, because they they felt that, that actually the teachers, um, they wanted to work on this as a group of staff to get that consistency across the staff of how and when and to actually consider the students that they have in front of them um, to ensure that they could do something positive um, about how they present this to students and to actually understand that, you know, there, there are ways, as, as Anne has just said, of doing things well is still setting yourself high standards, um, but not wandering into that realm of showing high levels of perfectionistic characteristics. So I think there is a lot that could be done, um, hasn't been done with the official research yet, um, it's another one of those things where sort of COVID got in the way. Um, this was literally in the February before COVID hit us on that March. Um, but there are, I think there is there is probably work to do there in understanding that, as you've said already, to actually conduct some research in teachers um, to see how we stand as a profession in that way, because it's certainly it's damaging to some students. But the difficulty all the time is, and I think this is correct, Andy, isn't it? even if you've got a lot of that third flavour that we called it, where you think others expect you to be perfect, that always still lead into, you know, poor mental well-being. Um, it's just more likely. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we're talking about uh, risk here. Uh, and, you know, there'll, there'll be other uh, risk factors in the environment and there'll be other buffers in the environment as, as, as well. Uh, so, in and of itself, as I said, it's not perfectionism isn't a, a mental health disorder uh, on, on on its own, uh, it, but it, it is um, an established risk factor for a, ra a range of difficulties. Uh, so, teaching people the skills or providing them with the support in the environment that mitigates that risk um, is is what exactly this kind of prevention and intervention work is about. It's back to that key roles of teachers as well, Andy, isn't it? That, you know, we need to model the behaviour. Um, it's the same with anything else. You know, if we want to increase independent learning, for example, then, you know, the key role of the teachers is to model that behaviour um, so that students then model the behaviour of their teachers. I think that's that's really important. Yeah, some of the most interesting work I've done with ABLE students actually has been in the EPQ field at Key Stage 5 and the HPQ field, which we've just started experimenting with actually at Key Stage 4. You can do some really quite interesting and powerful and deep things with the student who's particularly ABLE because if the process is done right, it's the student driving the process themselves. Very much so. No, no, I mean, I've um, I've not delivered... Um, EPQ myself but I know you know when that process followed there are some and it actually doing it at key stage five is kind of a bit late to identify them there are some that really do um, I think lead that project in a way that astounds the teachers that are actually delivering those lessons. Mm. Yeah we, we started experimenting with something we called a prize um, essay project we started as early as year nine and all of our students in our school, everyone in year nine would pick a topic to do some research on. They'd invent their own question. They'd be given some kind of staff supervisor to help them through the process. And then they would go through the process of producing a piece of individual research on something they found particularly unique or 
engaging or surprising, partly based on their studies, but not always actually, sometimes from outside their field of expertise. That's always been quite useful for us in flagging up those students we think are likely to perform extremely well Hmm. in our statutory examinations, but also in the wider field. What other things do you think schools could do to beef up their provision for the more able? Well, I mean, it's interesting, the point you just made, Christopher, I know some of our Challenge Awards schools introduced that research style project. Um, But some of them, I think there's one in particular that starts in year eight, but they use their older students that have been through that process as mentors within that as well. Um, which is, I know, really, really successful in that school in developing that independence, um, you know, to empower learners um, with their education as well. And then aside from that, I think within the classroom, it's how we develop those other areas of challenge and how we set up that safe environment to make mistakes. And I'm thinking of a, a class where when I was in my senior roles, I didn't actually teach that much teaching. Um, and it tended to be the sort of A-level further maths. But myself and the head of mathematics at that time, uh, we shared a year seven group deliberately because we wanted to look at our curriculum, but actually identify some of those issues we've just talked about. There were some students, although they were joining us, this group was of the similar ability if you looked at key stage two SATs. But there were some students that just took the bull by the horns. They had a go. They were persevering. Um, They were quite happy to make mistakes um, to get to, you know, the right answer or, you know, to answer a particular challenge. And there are some students that were so concerned about making a mistake that it really became a hindrance for them. Um, to To the extremes, going back to perhaps some of our perfectionistic characteristics, that you know, they didn't want to actually try in case they might be wrong. So it's how we develop those climates of not just risk taking. I'm not talking risk taking when it was done badly, perhaps 20 odd years ago, but actually challenging students and then working with them with that safe environment. That if somebody makes a mistake, that it's actually perfectly okay to use visualizers in the classroom and identify, you know, where did this go wrong? And and having that group of students to support each other to move forward. And it's how we create those climates, because I know Andy's looking at doing some work on perfectionistic climates. But the, the number one, I think, importance is that we have that safe environment within our classes to learn from errors, to understand it's perfectly acceptable to make errors. And actually, as Andy said earlier about the bumps of life along the way, if we don't actually ever create the experience where students are thinking hard and struggling, then I don't think we're doing them justice for their futures. Yeah, I think there's some interesting work to be done there on that shift from putting the piece of work up on the board for the class to analyse and moving from that sense of comparison to that sense of collaboration with the group. I think that probably gets harder in some subjects as you move beyond kind of class sizes of 18, 19, 20, you're up to about 30, 32. You're always going to have that kind of comparative well, I, I don't suppose you necessarily always have to have it, but there's there's that underlying comparative element kind of hanging in the air, isn't there? Particularly if it's a mixed ability group. But we go back to that first point we made. I mean, that's, you know, take my class of maths where I, you know, had 30-odd students in front of me, 30 to 32. I mean, we go back to that challenge and it really highlights the importance of providing for our more able learners and provide that scaffolding everybody else to create that culture of, 
you know, high expectations and that that ethos to achieve, because I'd argue it's really hard to do that unless you consider the needs of the more able learners in front of you first. Mm. Um, and as I said, 30 years ago, well, it's not quite 30 years ago I started teaching, um, but it was very much, you know, encouraged that the focus was on that CD borderline at the time. And I think at times, although I hope I never did this myself, um, it would have been a case of, you know, if you've got that guarantee, just let them get on with it. And then the extension tasks were given, whereas what we're doing now is creating that challenge in the classroom to ensure that diet and that curriculum for everybody is in place for all and not just, you know, those people who've got the abilities or the circumstances to do something with that outside of the classroom. Um, but alongside of that, I did want to just emphasise um, you know, enrichment is still a good thing. And what we found with that class in year seven, um, we really generated some motivation and a desire to take on new challenges. And I think that's what we're all trying to achieve. So when we did run enrichment clubs, actually, there were more that wanted to be there uh, because they were really engaged within the classroom. So I think the challenge is really, really important. And it's not always easy. You know, as you say, with those with high levels of perfectionistic characteristics, it's not an easy thing just to say, don't worry about making a mistake because they still will. But I think it's important that the, the climate that we introduce to our classroom is there to support them, that, the you know, the understanding that we want in our classrooms, that we want people to have a go, we want people to get stuck in, we want people to try. And obviously, if we make errors, then that's, you know, understanding that that's normal and normalising those sorts of things, I think is very important, whichever classroom we have. Yeah, I think it's particularly important that you make that point there. I'm thinking about the questions I get posed from some students looking for model answers in my subject of English. And it's a really difficult thing to give people because what I'm looking for is their own individual unique thought on a particular theme or topic. I'm not looking for them to reproduce somebody else's thought secondhand. So there's that kind of always perpetual resistance I have to giving out what the students deem to be model answers, but at the same time, they want the reassurance of knowing what they're shaping is broadly what is being looked for. Is that balance all of the time, isn't it? It's, it's so difficult. Have you had any experience of that, Andy? How might you experience that at university? Do you still have students looking for model answers at university level? Um, I think uh, students are always looking for reassurance uh, and and the the right answer. Um, I, I think probably the, the 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 biggest difference is because universities we don't we don't have. Uh, well, most subject areas don't have a curriculum per, per se. Like uh, we try to sit students uh, at the kind of very for, kind of forefront of of knowledge uh, through the research that we do. So, so, so there is a an ambiguity and an, and an uncertainty um, that our students have have to eventually get used to because eventually we we don't have the answer. To some of the questions that we pose and um, so I, I think the kind of philosophical or pedagogical underpinning of what we do acknowledges the fact that eventually uh, unavoidably um, we as lecturers uh, as academics 
we we don't have the answer e- uh, either. So you know the the kind of process that we go through is is to some degree aimed at preparing people f- for for that eventuality with the critical skills required to appraise knowledge as and when it it's updated. So I think it's a, it's 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 a it's a slightly different task, but certainly I, I recognise um, the kind of strategies that uh, that students uh, and resources and support that the students all students uh, look for. Um, and how how you make students feel comfortable with that? I think it, it is really difficult, um, but I think ultimately it, it is a it is a comfort blanket uh, for what we're describing here which is students becoming more comfortable being uncomfortable yeah i think that's a very good way of phrasing it or students possibly being more comfortable with discovering their own limitations in that stretching process yeah i think it comes back to your statement about uh, the gcse b students because a lot of students who are successful at universities are, are the ones who are used to encountering things that are really difficult and not getting it the first time uh, and then ne- needing to deploy different strategies and effort um, o- over an extended period of time. And, and often it can be students um, where who, who have experienced kind of a different uh, um, amount of success uh, you know, it might have come a little bit more naturally to them, and and once they do encounter the difficult materials, it it it, it can it can be a a very different experience for them. Thank you very much, Andy. I think it's an excellent point to finish on this idea that we need to keep stretching all of these students we have in front of us, so that we can give them that confidence in their own ability later on, and immediately while they're in front of us, and that capacity to seek. The challenge that is a welcome challenge, Robert. Exactly. It's, as you say, giving students the skills to be able to deal with that. The last thing we want to do is cause anxiety. So all of the time we're introducing, you know, those skills that students need to be successful alongside the challenge. And then that creates that flow that we're all looking for. And as we said, it's a it's a difficult job, but one that's so rewarding. And uh, yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's the key for me. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for your contributions this evening. Rob, where might our listeners go for more information about NACE and its work in schools? Well, we've got those uh, Twitter feeds and various social media feeds as well, but our website is www.nace.co.uk. And if you're particularly interested in the perfectionism, if you just do a forward slash perfectionism, you'll see all of those resources that we've just been talking about. Great, thank you. And Andy, where might our listeners find out more about the study of more able students and their needs? Uh, so you can go to the university website. We also have a, a university repository of all the research that we've uh, produced. That's called RAY. So if you just type in R-A-Y-Y-S-J-U, uh, that will come up. But uh, as Rob has indicated, there are lots of our resources um, and the resources co-created with NACE are, are available on their website. Well, thank you very much, both of you. It's been great to have you on the show tonight. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Christopher. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of another edition of The Late Show. But what an important one it's been. I hope my guests tonight have helped you develop a stronger understanding 
of some of the issues that ABLE students face in mainstream school environments and some ideas about how you might better support them in fulfilling their potential as they rise through the education system and enter the adult world. Thank you very much again to my excellent guests, Rob Lightfoot and Andy Hill. Thank you to everyone who's tuned in to the show tonight and texted in. Do check out our other Teachers Talk radio shows this week. There's now a comprehensive back catalogue of thought-provoking and entertaining shows on topics as diverse as SEND provision, teaching methodologies and outdoor education hosted by our excellent and ever-growing panel of teacher presenters. And you can find them all on our website, www.ttradio.org. And if you have something you want to say or ask others about education here in the UK or further afield, then perhaps you should consider applying to join the station as a show host. I can thoroughly recommend it. I've never learned more about education than in my past two years as a radio show host. We're always on the lookout for those with current or recent experience of the classroom and other less educational settings. Full details can be found on our website. I'll give you the address again, www.ttradio.org.uk. That's all from me this month on this Candlemas night, the final day of Epiphany Tide. So thank you for listening. Enjoy the last few weeks before half term. And we will speak again in February. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.